Welcome to The Dirt. I am your host, Brian Powell. If you're new to our show, The Dirt is a program tackling environmental policy and environmental justice in the state of North Carolina. We always have incredible guests sharing stories, knowledge, expertise that you will not find anywhere else. And today is no exception. So let's dig into it. The voices on our show today come from Whitaker's, North Carolina. And this past week, the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network held its 21st annual Environmental Justice Summit at the Franklinton Center at Bricks in Whitaker's. More on that center in a minute. For some background, the Environmental Justice Network is, as spelled out in its mission statement, a coalition of community organizations and their supporters who work with low-income communities and people of color to promote health and environmental equity, clean industry, safe workplaces, and fair access to all human and natural resources. EJN strives to accomplish these goals through a mix of organizing, advocacy, research, and education. The bottom line is that many people in North Carolina and beyond are disproportionately exposed to health and environmental harms because of their race, ethnicity, income, or relative political power. This obviously is morally wrong. Sadly, fewer and fewer of our leaders bother to even pretend that they care about the life and death impacts of environmental racism. So, as always, change must come from the ground up. And that is where the Environmental Justice Network comes in. EJN describes the summit as a forum to bring people together to help educate and inform them about the history and current state of environmental injustice in North Carolina. The panels and research presentations are designed to help identify specific objectives and ideas for participants to take back to their communities, to their state and local government agencies. And attendees travel from across the state and the country to attend this every single year. There are always new faces. There are always recognizable faces of folks who come year after year as well to reconnect with one another at the summit. It's a great atmosphere of camaraderie and family and spirit and purpose. We spoke with some of the attendees about the stories they were bringing with them from their home communities. But first, I wanted to know more about where we were, the land that we were on. The Franklinson Center at Bricks is located in the countryside along the border of Nash and Edgecombe counties, about an hour northeast of Raleigh. Driving up, the fields looked like they were covered in snow, full of cotton waiting to be harvested. The gravel lane on the Franklinton Center campus pulls you slowly by a couple of very old farmhouses and some other larger buildings that also look as though they've stood the test of time. I knew that a plantation had once been located here prior to the Civil War and that later these grounds held a school, one of the first accredited schools for black children in America. Today, it's a social justice conference and retreat center, but there's so much more to know about the center and the land it's on. So I sat down with Reverend Ellie Mendez Angulo, the program manager at the Franklinton Center at Bricks, to talk about the history and significance of the venue. Tell me about the land we're standing on right now. The history of the land that we're standing on is really complicated, Um, like the history of the United States, like the history of North Carolina in particular. We're in eastern rural North Carolina, 
I say those things over and over again because I have to remind myself that that's my new world. Um, but the land was originally um, served, taken care of by indigenous peoples. Um, we believe that that would have been the Tuscarora um, people. And they were here for a long time until some settlers decided that they knew better. And when those people took it over, um, it changed the atmosphere, I think. Um, and we're still feeling its effects. Uh, this is land that has historically been um, a plantation. That would have been the plantation that bore the name Wiggins or Garrett um, at different points in its history. Some people claim that this would have been a breaking plantation, <laughs> which are very big words that have a lot of uh, emotional baggage that needs to be unpacked. Uh, unfortunately, uh, half an hour, an hour, 45 minutes, three hours is insufficient. Uh, so we, we invite people who come on our land and want to have deep conversations that are complicated and complex uh, to start with that conversation. Uh, yeah. Can you walk me through, not literally because we're inside, the kind of the, the buildings uh, that are here or, or a couple of them and maybe what their significance was historically and, and how they're used today? Most people would frame that question a little bit different. They would ask me uh, which building was the original plantation house? Um, where were the houses for the slaves or those that had been enslaved by the people on this ground? Um, we actually don't own any buildings that are part of that history. Our history, though complicated, when it comes to the buildings, it's really a liberation story. Um, our buildings are the, the, the oldest three portions of the campus. Two are the houses when you first drive in. They were built in 1895. And the portion of the building that the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network is currently using um, is the original dining hall for what would have been um, a school. Uh, not just any school, but in 1895, there was a school called the Joseph Keesby Brick Agricultural, Industrial, and Normal School, which was built on this land that had systemically uh, been a breaking plantation um, in order to break the land of that portion of its history. So the school that was built here would have been teaching all of the normal topics of the day, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, they would have been talking about agriculture, how you best use the land to get the best um, crops out of it, how you uh, maybe work the crops that come out in order to have them last longer. Um, that's, those are the buildings that we have that are historic. They're built in 1895. The oldest usable is the original dining hall where at one point I've seen images of people sitting at tables, people who had been slaves 30 years before, coming out of slavery, having been maybe born enslaved, having come out of slavery, whose parents came out of slavery, whose grandparents came out of slavery, and having this opportunity 
to re-educate, to learn, to process. Not to process because of a white savior, but rather because black people who had already had access to education were leading them by the hand and helping them along, which is still what we do today. What's the newest building here? The newest building here is uh, was built in 2006, and it is, uh, we call it Hospitality House 2, because we're not that original with our names. <laughs> um, Hospitality House 1 was originally is originally um, on a dorm, so we call it the old dorm. The newer building is actually the home of our conference and retreat center. It really has a large gathering space. It holds about 125 people comfortably. It has uh, private rooms. And when I say private rooms, I'm really saying private bathrooms. <laughs> the old dorm doesn't have private bathrooms, so a lot of people are uncomfortable with that idea, especially as we start to um, work with groups that are doing um, justice work around gender identity and queer identity. Um, those spaces may not feel as comforting to some people. So uh, tell me a little bit more about what, it's not a school anymore. What is happening here now? What is being born here at Franklin Center? Actually, the room that you're in is our birth home. Um, it's our birthing room, I think. It's where we talk about um, yes, the systemic oppression of a people in the building itself, but rather um, how we transition away from that and into uh, liberation stories. Um, in this room, there are now images of those people for whom this place became the home of liberation. And on the shelves, there are the names of those who are continuing to make history today. Um, and those are the groups that are here. Uh, they're social justice activists who are doing the work all over the U.S., all over the globe, and find it important to come back to maroon space where they can actually be free to live. I guess we can't talk about the Franklinton Center uh, without mentioning the magnolia tree. Can you tell me uh, the significance of the magnolia tree? Mm -hmm. There's a sign um, on our campus that says Magnolia Tree and Whipping Post. Um, I think of that area as a remembrance area. It's a place where we remember, we recognize uh, the systemic oppression of a people who were brought here to be broken. Um, it's also a place where um, our ancestors, I feel, are rejoicing at the idea um, that they couldn't have imagined way back in those days. Um, looking around at the space, uh, they couldn't have imagined um, that we'd be free to live and breathe and speak and act in the things that we do. Uh, the magnolia tree has a significance that um, that's seldom talked about. I, I've done a lot of research lately just pulling it apart because I'm curious about the story of the magnolia tree. It's said that magnolia trees um, the ones that we now consider so important to the South are not actually the indigenous magnolia trees of the South. Um, these are magnolia trees that would have come from Asia, much like black people were brought from Africa and were not meant to survive that transatlantic um, travel. These trees probably shouldn't have survived that travel either. Um, but in my reading, I found that um, 
that the magnolia tree once planted seems to change the, the dirt in which it was planted and to be changed by the dirt. And so in that relationship, I think for me, I recognize the importance of being black in America. We changed the dirt. It was already enlivened by the indigenous people, but we changed the atmosphere. And we were, in fact, also changed by it. That's beautiful. Can you tell me, we've, we've looked back at what this place has been in the past and what it is now in 50 years from now. What will this space be? Dreams. It'll be dreams. Uh, I look forward uh, you know, I'll, I'll share with you that we just recently changed our logo. And if you get a chance, I'll show it to you in my office. The new logo has a drive, uh, what seems to be a path with trees on both sides. Um, and it has a Sankofa bird turning to grab onto its history as it's still transitioning forward. It seems to be on the precipice of, of a border um, so sort of transitioning into the next movement. I just dream that into existence. I don't know what it looks like, but every young person that walks through this campus is dreaming something big, and I can't wait to see and feel what they dream here. Thank you very much for telling us these stories. You're we welcome. appreciate it. <laughs> You are listening to Reverend Ellie with the Franklinton Center at Bricks discussing the historic roots of the venue hosting the 21st annual North Carolina Environmental Justice Summit. And there is so much more to know and learn about the Franklinton Center. We had to cut it short for time for the show, but you should absolutely go check out the Franklinton Center on Facebook and Twitter at Franklinton Cent, C-E-N-T. For example... The area that the Franklinton Center at Bricks is located in is the second largest food desert in the United States. And they are working uh, with the local communities and, and founded the Just Food Project in 2012 to offer uh, a place for people to grow organic produce, to offer cooking classes to teach children how to prepare the produce in healthy ways. And they get about 25 to 65 children every single week to participate in this. So in addition to the amazing, incredible history of the center, what's happening right now there in that space is incredible and a model that other communities could follow. So check them out. We'll continue with more after the break. This is The Dirt on WNCU 90.7 FM. Welcome back to The Dirt. I'm your host, Brian Powell. You are listening to interviews and dispatches from the 21st annual North Carolina Environmental Justice Summit held by the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network at the Franklinton Center at Bricks in Whitakers, North Carolina. Each year, the Environmental Justice Network honors several attendees and communities who have been on the front lines of environmental justice fights in the past year or few years. The community Resilience Award is designed to spotlight community groups and individuals who have made a difference in environmental struggles. This year, it was received by David Harrison. David is a North Carolina native born and raised in Stokes County, North Carolina. 
He's an active and outspoken community member of Residents for Coal Ash Cleanup, RCAC, a group of Stokes County residents that was founded in 2012 around coal plant discharges and some pending EPA rules at the time. RCAC has grown from six original members to nearly 40 members who meet monthly. David is a founding member of the ACT Statewide Alliance, a statewide group of residents impacted by coal ash. They've been featured several times on our show. And since 2015, David has been the president of the Walnut Tree Community Association, a community of color that has been fighting a 40-year battle against racism and environmental injustice against the nearly all-white town of Walnut Cove. In 2016, David testified in front of the North Carolina Advisory Council to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights on behalf of Belus Creek residents and their concerns over contaminant readings in their drinking water wells. David is president of the Mildred S. Hairston Youth Mentoring Center, which provides guidance to students in Stokes County, assistance with schoolwork, and skills training to prepare him for the future. He's an active member of the Stokes County NAACP, and he sits on the board of a group called Appalachian Voices, which has been hugely influential in the coal ash fight in North Carolina, among many other things. And he received the award, so we sat down and talked to him about what it meant and and what it meant for his community and and where things go from here, and, and a few tips on how to organize if your community is facing similar struggles. Have a listen. Tell me about, I mean, A, how you're feeling um, after receiving the award and um, a little bit about uh, what they were honoring you for. Uh, I'm very excited, and it's a great honor, not for me, but for our community and the people that helped coalition the team that brought it together to make us worthy of this award. Uh, we started probably seven or eight years ago. Uh, people like N.C. Warren, Appalachian Voice, came in and started educating our community on the pollution that we were receiving from the coal ash ponds, the coal ash fields, and through the air Duke steam stations. As a kid growing up, we realized the coal ash was falling on our community, but we were ill-informed of the toxins that were in it. You know, mostly people had wood fire stoves and ashes were flying around off of wood and stuff, but we didn't realize the heavy metals and the toxins that we're in coal ash. And after we got educated on it, uh, and Appalachian Voice and the people from NC Warren and Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign and stuff like that, they started coming around and helping us organize to fight back against the pollution that was dumped on what a lot of people say are predominantly black neighborhoods, but it happens to be in our neighborhood that is black and white. Uh, People of less means that couldn't fight back. So without uh, civil rights lawyers and people like Reverend Barber and other people coming around, even Al Gore came to our town. So I'm always interested in, when I'm talking to people who uh, have been involved in community organizing about what the kind of the first practical steps are when it comes to getting other people on board um, and educated on your particular issue. So I'm wondering what, uh, from your experience, are kind of the most effective ways of, of educating people um, and of, of letting people know even what's happening in their community. 
Well, our first step was getting people out to meetings, uh, passing out uh, information on flyers with the meeting times and dates and places, posting it on Facebook for some of the younger people, explaining what we were meeting about in detail, and getting them there. After we got a few people there, it was a small group at first, but they would go tell other family members, and they would get interested, worried about, is my water toxic too? Is there or how is this affecting my children or my grandchildren and stuff like that. And once you, they found out that it was more widespread than they thought it about, because a lot of people thought, well, I don't live down by the coal ash pond. It's not affecting me. But the long-term effects, if it's not cleaned up, is going to affect you eventually because uh, toxins spread, especially when they're in the wa underground water system so. Uh, word of mouth and getting people out and finding out, informing them how this affected them was our greatest tool to get started. When you're having conversations or passing out flyers, uh, is does the church play a role in that at all? Is that, have you found that, that to be That is a major role. A okay. major role is through uh, religious groups, people of faith. That is, uh, I would say, 99% of people that are affected by that, that is their main source because... Most of those are good, caring people and educated. And the ones that are in a black community or a rural community that doesn't have a college education, they depend on their religious leaders to not mislead them, to inform them on uh, health issues, community issues, social issues, political issues, and stuff like that to keep them abroad of what's going on in their community. So earlier in the year, the decision was made to excavate all of the coal ash from various sites around, uh, storage sites around North Carolina. And I, I think that was met with generally positive response. But I'm wondering from you, what's next for you, for Wana Cove? Uh, what's next for coal ash in North Carolina? Uh, what is the next fight on this issue? The next fight for us is getting them to excavate the coal ash and look for a safe way to to remove it, renew it, or some scientific way to where it won't harm anybody again. Even though they're excavating it, they're just moving it to a line landfill on their own property. Unfortunately, laws in North Carolina allow you to pollute your own property as long as it doesn't leave your property. But that was the case with the coal ash pond. It was legal until it started seeping out. Even and, from what I, and from what I understand... Duke has a practice of they'll just keep buying more and more land right. around their area so that they can say that they're, you know, within the technical boundaries of the law, you know, and that is, unless the water, unless the water's right. Needed. And that is one of our biggest proponents is that a lot of that is family owned land around there. And even though where they polluted, it's not worth a dime. We still won't sell it to them. So we have to keep that boundary between where the good land is and the bad land is. But, the Lion Landfill is just going to be a temporary solution until we can come up with the next solution. And on the next forefront, for us, I sit on the board of directors of Appalachian Voices is stopping the pipelines, which we're doing a great job of right now. And at Duke University, their climatologist just wrote a scathing report and named uh, natural gas is the ugly sec second cousin of coal ash. So 
it's an easier way for Duke to like to uh, move forward. But right now, they can't afford to truck in enough natural gas to fire their plant. So if we can keep the pipeline staggered and stalled at the Virginia line like we have right now and keep it tied up in court, coal will run out before then, so they'll move to solar panels. Right now, uh, we're on board with probably in the next 18 months getting one of the state's second largest solar panels put into the port, the little town of Warner Cove, about 11 to 1,700 acre solar farm to sell power to Duke Energy. So, and those those so the solar facilities and and there's not very many wind farms in North right. Carolina, but the ones that exist, they become huge economic boons to the counties uh, and even the the property owners that they locate in. I mean, usually uh, in terms of paying taxes or uh, you know paying for the the land that they're siting on originally. To your point, uh, Duke's, uh, that, that climatologist report was truly, truly scathing. Yes. And uh, I think the News and Observer recently came out with an editorial uh, jumping off of that and, yeah. and saying, you know, we got to stop, like natural gas, right. that conversation just has to stop. And I think right. that's something the environmental community or much of the environmental community has been saying for a long time. This idea that it's a bridge fuel is, um, it doesn't make any sense. And uh, it's good to it's good to see some uh, non you know environmental space right. voices starting to talk about that. And of course, the North Carolina Poor People's Campaign I feel like has been also a huge uh, force in elevating uh, that conversation uh, as well. Um, is there anything else uh, that you have experienced? I know something that I've talked to with other people here at the Environmental Justice Summit uh, has been this idea, and this is one of the great parts about this summit every single year, and people can rely on it, is you've got one community in one place who's experiencing some kind of harm, uh, but they may not know that it's uh, being experienced in another community. And people come from all over the state and beyond here uh, and start share, they share stories and they begin to see patterns emerge. Right. Um, ha, have have you had any of those? What was that uh, part of the history of the Walnut Cove experience? Have you had any of those experiences uh, here this year? Uh, what are you? What else are you looking forward to in terms of uh, the impact that the Environmental Justice Network and the summit can have now this year in the future and beyond? Yes, I noticed that as a pattern by working with other groups that live close to Colash Ponds, and that was part of my presentation to DEQ. I said, we, you can go from town to town, and it'll be different faces, but the same story. And when they came up, we, uh, Appalachian Voice, we rented uh, two of us, put them all on one bus, and let me describe from my mother's home in my childhood neighborhood to Duke Energy, which was probably approximately three and a half, four-mile ride, that I couldn't point on either side of the road where it wasn't a survivor of cancer or someone in that home that had died of cancer or someone that was sitting in there that was on oxygen tanks and showed them the uh, history of my job for the last year. Every day of my vacation was used going to one of my family members or classmates or just a regular friend's funeral that lived in that area for the 40 years that Duke Power had been online. And when they would go to a Belmont, Goldsboro, or Buncombe County to 
and visit with other people, it will be the same story. So it's too many people with the same illnesses that live in the same radius of a coal ash pond or coal ash field that, for it to be coincidental. Let me ask you this. Duke Energy has recently uh, filed a couple of rate cases. They want to raise electric bills on folks across the state again. Is that uh, they'll have to, obviously, they'll have to go before the Utilities Commission and have a whole hearing and investigation and all of that kind of thing. Is that something that you're going to be involved in or your organizations? Will you be uh, intervening or advocating uh, related to that? Or is that just to, you know, it's not coal ash specifically related? So Every step of the way I'll be involved. Uh, they don't realize that that's just making our coalition stronger. Because the people that are not affected by coal ash will be affected by a rate hike. No matter what your financial situation is, you don't want your light bill to go up because, I mean, I know people that are well off, some that are middle class, and some that just can't afford a rate hike. And every one of them already talk about their electrical bill is already too high. So I use the analogy that the 40 years that Duke Energy has been online for Bluest Lake, they made billions of dollars off of the coal ash toxins that they have dumped on those communities that only 1% of one year's profit is all it takes to clean it up. So why should we have to pay for your business? That's just like if you own a business and you're making something and your machine breaks down, you want your customers to buy you a new machine <laughs> to produce the product that they're going to have to still pay for. I mean... I can understand if it was something out of their whim or natural disaster or, or something and the company was going bankrupt. But when you're posting $8 billion profit for one year and it only costs $460 million, that's their quality. If they have to pay for it, it'll cost a lot less than $460 million to clean it up. That's only 1% of your profit for one year to clean up Lewis Lake. So I think your stockholders can do without their new BMW or Mercedes that year. They can wait till the next year and buy them one that we're not going to stand for the rate hike. And just like I tell most of their spokesmen when they talk to me, they will be them went totally solar if they could make the sun only shine on their panels where they could be a monopoly. Tell me what environmental justice is in four words. Equal rights for everybody. Well said. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, sir, for taking, uh, taking the time to talk to us today. Anytime. Okay, we are headed to a break. You have been listening to an interview with David Harrison, a Stokes County resident and board member of Appalachian Voices. He has been an integral fighter on the front lines to clean up coal ash in the state of North Carolina, and he was the recipient of an award at the 21st Annual North Carolina Environmental Justice Summit. This is The Dirt on WNCU 90.7 FM. Look for us on Twitter at The Dirt FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You are listening to The Dirt with Brian Powell on WNCU 90.7. We are headed into the final segment of the show today. And to wrap up the slate of voices that we've heard from the North Carolina Environmental Justice Summit, I sat down with Macy Henson and Richard Leake, residents of West Baden, North Carolina. They were both longtime employees of Alcoa, 
an aluminum manufacturer that operated in West Baden for decades until moving operations overseas around 2002. And today, these men and others are fighting for accountability and cleanup of the company's toxic and racist legacy that remains in their community. Here's what they had to say. Good morning. I'm uh, Richard Leak, uh, past alcohol employee. I live in Montgomery County. I'm Lacey Henson uh, from Stanley County, and we're dealing with an issue of a company that was there, Alcor, that we feel that left a lot of things there that they should come back and clean up, and we're both a part of the concerned citizens of West Baden. Tell me a little bit more about the history behind what Alcoa has been doing in West Baden historically. But to begin with, the Alcoa, the, the goal of everyone that lived in that area was to work at that plant because of the wages they paid. They paid excellent wages, and I went there when I was in February 20th, 1967, and started working there. It was the only job I had for 32 years, 10 months, in December '99. The plant was in the process of closing because of either A, economic reasons, or they were planning to move overseas, which is what they did in 2002. They shut the plant down altogether. And in the meantime, when you went to work at Alcoa as a black man in the plant, you went into the, the locker room, there was a wall there. We went in the door, black, white, a wall on the inside, all the way down to where you clocked in to go to work. And that's how it was and until civil rights issues and, and union uh, issues changed that. There were some inferior jobs in the plant that you knew as a person based on the color of your skin where you would end up working. All of the people that, that worked in the main office, they were relatives of people that were already there and they made sure they took care of their people. The other thing was that a byproduct of making aluminum, everything that came out of it was hazardous. They didn't have anywhere to put it, they dumped it wherever they wanted to because they owned all of the property up until the 70s. And, and Today, they're still dealing with issues of digging all of that material up. And there were a lot of young men that, that died from working at Alcoa because of health issues, primarily cancer, and they would put on a death certificate another thing. They wouldn't say exactly what it was. And we knew that we were going to have to work in these inferior jobs during that work because it was a, it was the black man's job. That was the, the way it was labeled. I started my uh, alcohol career in 1973 uh, as a potliner. Uh, being a potliner, uh, my job classification was to uh, repair one out pot. Uh, in the process of uh, repairing those pots, we would uh, take the shell out of the uh, structure and carry it outside and uh, do what they call a cleaning uh, procedure. Uh, we when we cleaned the shell out, we would wash it down in the drain line. We were washing it in the, in the you know, main water supply, and we we didn't know it at that time. But uh, we uh, didn't know that the material that 
we were washing down in the uh, water drains was hazardous waste. Uh, I found out uh, through cleaning those shells that when we uh, popped the, the uh, clean the walls of the shell with, with a, with a uh, jackhammer, we would scrape it, bloom, and the stuff would pop back on our skin and would burn it. We found out that what we were dealing with was uh, what they call cold tar pitch. And coal tar pitch was like an acid uh, type of uh, a chemical uh, mixed with something like a tar type of, uh, of substance. And um, we would use it on the sidewall in the pot, in the pot shelf to uh, uh, hold the blocks in place. But when that pot tap, tap out or, not, or go out, uh, it was my job to uh, install that material and clean that shell for the next round. And the uh, material that we used to uh, glue the blocks on the side of the wall was a hazardous material. We found out later that uh, a cold top pitch called uh, uh, kidney cancer, uh, uh, all, really all kind of cancer. Uh, um, we found out that uh, Alcor knew that the material that we were using in pot lining was a, a hazardous material, but never uh, told us uh, some of the labels that they had on the product. Uh, we found out later on that uh, they were falsified. Uh, we uh, found out that um, they um, used uh, the University of Pittsburgh and uh, Boston, I want to say it was Boston College, uh, to uh, falsify information on some of the products that we were using. Uh, we found out from the uh, manufacturer some of that stuff that um, after they explained to Alcor about the hazard part of the situation and they refused to uh, sell it to them, that Alcor bought them out because they needed that product in order to uh, make a loan. I got concerned after we did a survey. Uh, over 85% of the black men that worked for Alcor at that particular time died with cancer. We had what they called a 25-year club and most of those, well, all those guys almost in the 25-year club were dead. And they used to have a saying about that 25-year club that once you join the 25-year club that you would join the, the graveyard. That's 25 years that you've been working there doing that? 25 years on the job. And the uh, people would call it the, the graveyard, the guys that worked in there, because they knew that most of the guys that were on that wall were dead. Mr. Henson, let me turn to you. What was your experience like? trash dump that the uh, alcohol plant maintains in the black community. You could dump all of your trash down there and do whatever you wanted and then they set it up fire and think it was a joke to set it up fire. They would bring hazardous material out of the plant. They said they didn't dump it, but they dumped it over there. And when they closed that trash dump, they covered it up with dirt and said nothing's leaching, there's a creek below it, and they said everything was okay. In December of one year, that a fire started, and you know, byproduct of trash is methane gas. It burned for two and a half months before it went out or was put out by a heavy rain. They blamed it on a natural gas pipeline, but if it was a natural gas pipeline, you could just cut that off and that would take care of that. But the only thing that put that fire up was uh, heavy rain, and that's my main concern is you had that trash dump there 
the Maiden plant was on the Superfund cleanup site to the tune of $150 million to clean that trash dump up, and all of a sudden it got taken off. If you did it today, it would be $200 million to clean that site up. And that, that's what's, what my main concern is, to go and dig up that unlined trash dump and move everything out of there and clean it up like it's supposed to. Where, where do things stand now in terms of, you said Alcoa has shut down its operations there, so uh, the waste is still there. What what's the what's the next thing? What what is what's the latest uh, on you know cleaning this up and and finding justice finding justice for the folks who have been injured uh, in all these ways? Uh, right now, the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network, Southern Environmental Law Center, and the, the Duke. Law Center, I know that's not the correct term of it, but right long is there up at Duke. He's getting ready to file a petition to get those three main sites cleaned up, the trash dump, the old ballpark, and the drainage facility all over the plant because everything that you use, again, if it fell on the ground, PCB is not going away. We use PCB and transformers. When it was dry, they would put the PCB oils on the roads to keep the dust down. In the black neighborhood, which is the West Baden community, we had alleyways, uh, dirt alleyways. They would put it in the alleyways to keep the dust down. In East Baden, which was 90% white, they had paved alleyways. So from there, I live 300 yards north of the trash dump. The fire was 350 yards north of the trash dump. And it, I'm sorry, I live about 400 yards north of the trash dump. I used to go and play in it. They said they didn't put anything hazardous out there, but I know better because that's what I played in. I didn't have anything to play with, so. So the organizations you mentioned are filing a petition. Do you know when that is going to be filed and, and what comes next after that? Are there going to be any opportunities for the public to speak uh, to in support of the petition or anything like that? November 19th, there's going to be a meeting where we're going to get anybody that has anything to do or think you have anything to do where it affects you to come to that meeting and, and, and air your concerns. Lake Tillery which is where Little Mountain Creek dumps into is the, uh, I guess, Sierra Club or whomever that's concerned about your properties around there. We're going to invite them. We're going to invite the Baton Town Council. We're going to invite the county commissioners. We're going to invite a local representative. And then you are report, which is an exclusive Exclusive. I don't know if you've heard of that area or not. There, there are lots on there. It's known on Baden Lake. The lots that are six figures. And, and people that live there or have property there, by the way, if you had property there and you did not build anything, your name would be on the property. Two side-by-side lots. Michael Jordan. I'm sure you know who he is. I've heard of him. I've heard of him. <laughs> but that's that's how we're going to invite everybody we feel that involved and has a vested interest in this. And it's time to 
do it or get off the pot. That's, that's what I'm going to be advocating. And I expect Michael Jordan is listening to this program right now, so I just want to encourage you, sir, come out to this meeting and support the community that you are a part of. Is there a place that folks who are listening and want to support you all uh, can go or, or how to get more information um, with the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network website be the best place for them to uh, find out more information updates? Yes, as well as the Southern Environmental Law Center, Sean Terry was spearheading that she's going to get a, a newsletter out where we're going to put it in and around the community to let people know what's going on and whoever has something to do with Sierra Cliff or the, whatever clubs they have down on Lake Tillery they're going to get the information and we just want to make everybody aware publicly about what is about to happen and things that are or have been happening that you don't know about and come out and support the meeting. Thank you very much for both of y'all sharing sharing these stories. I know that it's something that people need to be paying attention to. Justice is long, long overdue, and clearly there are a lot of people who may never see it. They've passed on. Um, and that's uh, that's a tragedy and, and something, some accountability on some level deserves to be met here. So We'll see you next time. Until then, be good, y'all.